your, your Bibles or your devices open uh, at this passage in John chapter 18. Uh, we were in the Gospel of John a while back, having a series going through it, and then uh, we took a break to do our series on your life, church life, and, and now we, we've come back to the Gospel of John, and we've come back to the Gospel of John in some ways in time for Easter. And so as we build up and get ready for Easter, as we go through this Gospel of John, we are now very much in, in, in the narrative, in, in the story of Christ's betrayal, his arrest, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, and, and what happens next. Now, John's account of Jesus' final hours, this last section, his, his emphasis is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, we, we've said, and I said at the beginning of our series in John, as we were introducing it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written very close after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then the Gospel of John was a much later book that was, that was written. Now, there is no contradictions in these accounts, but they're different. Uh, they complement each other, but they are different. John was expecting people to know the facts from the other Gospels. John was expecting people to have read and heard Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. And indeed, when John was writing this, lots of people, most people would have known what was going on. They'd have heard it. And, and some of the people that were reading this at that time would have actually known these situations and possibly even been eyewitnesses to them themselves. John was wanting to give a focus. And John's aim for his gospel was to enable people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ being God's son and being the savior of this world. And so he has a focus in this last uh, 18, this last few chapters. And his focus is that he wants people to see Jesus's power the sovereignty of God, the power of Jesus, God's Son. And he wants to underline that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus' life wasn't taken. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice of our sins, but at the same time, Jesus had total sovereign power as the Son of God. And so that's the, the emphasis. And God willing, today we'll be looking at the section that we, that we read in those verses that I just uh, emphasized just now at the end. And so we'll be reading, we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 to 27 uh, of this chapter 18. Now you, you may remember or you may know that the, 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 ch the chapters previous, immediately prior to this, is what we know as the upper room discourse or the upper room sermon. Jesus was speaking to his disciples, a very intimate little group of them, and he was sharing with them and explaining things to them and preparing them for when he wasn't going to be there. 
But if you go back to chapter 13, that's sort of where the story finished. They had a break for this upper room discourse, and now the story and the narrative starts again. So if you go back to, to John chapter 13 in verse 21, we, we read that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus was concerned. Jesus was troubled. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. And he knew that he was going to be betrayed. And then the disciples, when they were gathered together, sharing the Passover with each other, they were upset by this and they wanted to work out who it was. And Jesus answered in verse 26 of chapter uh, 13, when they were wanting to find out, Jesus said, it is he who I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped his morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so here we see that Jesus is saying that he would be betrayed, and Jesus was pointing out Judas as the one who would go on to betray him. Verse 30 says, And so, after receiving the morsel of bread, immediately he went out. And then John just says and underlines the situation, and it was night. And so we have this picture of Judas leaving the disciples and Jesus and going out into the darkness. And then... Jesus then spoke to his disciples directly, and then we come to this chapter 18, and when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, to the place where was a garden, and he and his disciples entered Now, if you read this account in any of the other Gospels, this is where we see Jesus praying and his disciples falling asleep. But John doesn't mention that. John goes straight into the narrative of Jesus' arrest. Now, I have some headings uh, to help us through this morning. And, And the first one I want us to have in our minds is, I am not. I am not. And we're thinking firstly of Judas. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Chapter 13 tells us of how Judas went out to betray him. Before that, we see Judas coming to a point where money was more important to him than Jesus. And he got upset by the the, the vast money that was wasted in his minds on Jesus when Mary washed his feet with the ointment. And it wasn't because he thought it was wasted and could be given to the poor. He thought it could have been put in the bag. And as he was the thief, he could have had it. And so we have to remember this, that Judas didn't deny Christ. 
he betrayed him. And there's a difference. We will come to sort of see that difference more in a moment. But we know from the God's word, we know from earlier when we were going through this together, that Judas had all the privileges that all the other disciples had. There were 12 disciples. They, they, they hung out together for three years. They were with Jesus. Jesus called them. Jesus called Judas to be with them, just as he called Peter, just as he called John. He called them, and they came, and, and they lived, and they walked with Christ. Judas had seen the miracles. Judas had seen all that Jesus had done. Judas had seen and heard the teaching of Jesus. But Judas had rejected it. You see, Judas wanted money more than Christ. He was a thief. He was a treasurer. He had access to the money. And rather than using the money for the benefit of Jesus and his ministry... He kept taking it for himself. And then when the opportunity came, he realized that he could make money out of Jesus. And he sold Jesus for those 40 shekels, 40 pieces of silver. And so Judas wanted money more than Christ. He rejected Christ for material advantage. And this outworking of this rejection of Christ, the outworking of his desire of money more than Jesus, worked itself out to the betrayal. Worked itself out to Judas being there and betraying, selling Jesus for money. If Judas were honest, and we know that he wasn't because he was a thief, and thieves are dishonest, but if he was honest, and you said to him, are you in Christ? Judas would have to say, I am not in Christ. Judas was pretending to be a disciple. He was pretending to be a follower. And he was pretending to be these things because it was to his financial advantage. He got sucked along. He went that way. And it's a frightening reminder for us. Because there's many of us here today and there's many of us online listening in and we've heard the teaching you've heard the teaching of Christ you've heard of the miracles that he has done in his in his word you you may have experienced something of Christ you may have experienced something of him in the services in your church experience but if there is something in your life that is more important than Christ, then you are on Judas's pathway. This is really serious. 
if there's anything in your life that is more important than Christ, you are going the way of Jesus. You're in danger of rejecting Christ for that thing. For Judas, it was money. And that may not be where you're at. And sometimes the things that tempt us and pull us away from Jesus are good things. Money is not a bad thing. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Family can pull you away from Christ. If your family becomes more important than Christ, there's a problem. If your position, your occupation, your work is becoming more important than Christ, there is a problem. And they're good things, aren't they? We we are to look after our family. We are to work. But if those things become more important than Christ, then we're on that trajectory of rejecting him. And if you are rejecting Christ, if you're putting something else in Christ's place, who should be at the center of our lives, you're becoming in danger of betraying him. Judas, let it go too far. Judas was responsible for his own actions. Judas decided to betray Christ, and Judas is eternally lost. And friends, if there is something that is getting the better of you now, if something is more important to you than Christ now, now is the time to change it. Now is the time to confess it. As it's been said before, while there is life, there is hope. There is no hope now for Judas. It's too late. He let it go too far. He betrayed Christ and he's gone. But now, for each of us here, there is opportunity to ask for forgiveness. If Christ is not center of your life this morning, now is the time to ask God to help you put it right. Now is the time to repent of that, to ask of forgiveness, and to ask God's help to make it go the right way. If you are being honest with yourself now, can you say, I am in Christ? Or do you have to say, I am not in Christ? And if you're not in Christ, friends, you need to be. The only way to have our sins forgiven, the only way of an eternity secured, is having our sins forgiven through Christ Jesus. I want us to move on to an I am. An I am. In in the darkness of this betrayal, in the darkness of this passage of Scripture, John's gospel points to who Jesus truly is. And we see this 
when they uh, are out there to, to get him. And Judas has betrayed him. And Jesus said to them, well, there's this army of people that came out to get him with, with Judas at the front and, and the, the high priest guard and all this mass of people. And he says to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am now I hope you get that the magnitude and the massive nature of this I am he uh, the, the, hope the children's talk made you start thinking about this because I am is that great title that God took for himself and proclaimed for himself in Exodus three fourteen. Moses in the burning bush and God there from that burning bush said I am who I am And whenever Jesus made an I am statement, he proclaimed that he is God. And and throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses these I am statements, the the seven occasions of it. And as you remember, we went through it with with Bim Bim and the children. I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the door, John 10.7. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11 and 14 and 14. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11, 25. I am the way, the truth and the life, John 14, 6. And I am the true vine, John 15, 1 to 5. And as I was saying to the children, and as I sort of bring it here, what Jesus is saying is he's living up to his name. Jesus means Joshua. Joshua means saviour. The saviour from Nazareth. Who is the saviour from Nazareth? The I am. The one who can give eternal life. The one who can save people from their sins. The one who is the God-man. The incarnate son of God in this world. And so this I am statement is made. And then John goes on within this passage to give us five proofs that Jesus is God. We see in verse 4 that Jesus knows everything. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. We think we know what we're possibly going to have for dinner today. We think that we know that we're going to go to university or to work tomorrow. We think and make predictions of what's going to happen in the future. But none of us know what is going to happen. We might have an idea. We might have a plan. But we don't know what is going to happen. And here was Jesus at his arrest. And he states knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus knew what was going to go on ahead of him. Jesus knew this. And this is showing that the only person that can know what is going is God. It is the I am who I am here speaking in this situation. And he's there and he knows what is going to happen. Have you ever wished that you knew what was going to happen 
before it happened. Maybe, maybe you said that to yourself. If, if only I didn't do that. The, the action that you took brought you a problem. The, 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 the road you took meant that you got lost. If only I hadn't took that junction, I, it wouldn't have happened like that. You see, Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. And rather than saying, I don't want that to happen, and doing something differently, Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he went along with it. If, if you knew that some action that you was going to take was going to lead to your death, what would you do? You'd do something else, wouldn't you? If you knew that that bus there that you're going to get on was going to be involved in a horrendous accident, you'd just say, no, I'll leave it. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he knows what's going to happen. And so, friends, Christ's death, Christ's arrest, Christ's suffering was no accident. It was planned before time by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus went into it knowing what was going to happen. You see, I think if we knew what was going to happen before it did, we probably wouldn't have the power to change it. But here in this passage, we see that Jesus is all-powerful. He knows everything, and he is all-powerful. You see, when Jesus said to them in verse 6, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, who are they who drew back and fell to the ground? Well, there's Judas. But alongside Judas, there was a small army. There was the, the guard. There was this, and it's in, in, in other translations, and other verses, it talks about a cohort of soldiers. There's a hundred plus people there. I think we miss that. We often think of it for probably from the, the films and the picture books of uh, Judas and a couple of people. There was a whole mass there. And, and as Jesus says, I am he, this mass of armed guards who are armed with clubs, who are armed with swords, who've come out to arrest, they, they, they go back and they fall to the ground. And we see the power of Jesus. Jesus is all-powerful. Judas has already seen this. Judas had seen Jesus walk on water. Judas had seen Jesus turn the the five loaves and the two fishes into enough food to feed the 5,000. Jesus is all-powerful. And this all-powerful Jesus who knew what was going to happen, gave himself up. And it's it's a total joke to think that Jesus was arrested by the might of the Jews or the might of the Roman army. Jesus had the power simply just to to walk away or just to have the, the whole lot utterly destroyed. And just by saying, I am he, people saw something of the majesty and the power and the glory of the Son of God and they fell back. And so we see Jesus 
who knows everything. Jesus who is all-powerful. And then we also see that Jesus is promise-keeping. Verses uh, 8 to 9. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. And so if you seek me, let these men go. He's referring to his disciples, the 11 of them around him. And then verse 9. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus had made a promise. Jesus had given his word. Jesus in the upper room in chapter 17 in verse 12, in his prayer, says, while I was with them, this is disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so Jesus has the power to keep his promises. Jesus has the power to keep his word. And Jesus is keeping his word. And in the darkest and the blackest of nights, when Jesus was being arrested, when Jesus knew of all that was going to happen to him going forward, Jesus makes sure that he keeps his word to his disciples. He'd asked that they'd be kept. He was to keep them. And Jesus kept them. In some ways, we get a little picture of what Jesus does. Jesus is saying, here I am, but keep my people safe. A little glimpse of what salvation is. But the mighty Peter comes into action at this moment in time. And I'm really not sure if Peter was brave or a bit of an idiot here. Because let me remind you, there's over 100 soldiers, possibly up to 300 soldiers there. Yes. Peter versus them all. He pulls his sword out. And whether he's a very good aim or a very bad aim, he takes the ear off the high priest's servant. In some ways, that's not the point. The point is what Jesus says in result to this. We see that this Jesus who knows all things, this Jesus who is all-powerful, this Jesus who is promising-keeping, we see an obedient Jesus because Jesus turns to Peter and says, put your sword into its sheath. Put it away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? From the other Gospels, And particularly in Luke, we read that just before this event, Jesus is praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he opens up his heart to God the Father. And he says to God the Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew the pain. Jesus knew the suffering. Jesus knew the magnitude of the darkness that was going to come upon him. And he calls out to the Father, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus was powerful enough to stop it. And yet Jesus chose to use his power to look out for his disciples to make sure that none of them was lost. Jesus 
used his power and chose to be obedient to God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, before time began, had came up with a plan of salvation. And Jesus, God's Son, was being obedient to God the Father. And he is willing to drink the cup. Illustrations just seem pathetic when it comes to this subject. But I don't know if you've had a sense of dread before something. Maybe a really serious exam. That, that sense of dread of, of facing the exam and you go to the exam hall and, and the paper is put in front of you face down and you know that the past four years and the rest of your life are wrapped up in that bit of paper. And, and the dreaded moment when you turn it over and you either realize with delight you know the answer or with horror that your fireman wasn't good enough and you'll be doing the resets. Or maybe the dread of going to the doctors. You've got a pain. And it's a serious pain. And it's not going away. And maybe you've been coughing up blood. Maybe you've been seeing other symptoms, and you are concerned, and there's that dread, and there's that foreboding. And, and you go to the doctors, and they, and they do the tests, and, you, and you're waiting for the result of that test. And, and, and these are just tiny little thoughts in our minds of what this was like for Christ. Christ knew what was ahead of him. Christ, who had always been united with the Father, was going to be forsaken by the Father. Christ, who had hated sin and never sinned, was going to become sin. And yet, despite of this, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was obedient. We might ask ourselves, why? And that's because this passage shows us that Jesus is a savior. Not only is Jesus the one who knows everything, the one who is all powerful, the one who is promise keeping, the one who is obedient. Jesus is the savior. Verse 14 it was Cephas, the high priest, who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now bear with me, it doesn't say saviour there, does it? But let's work with what's going on here. Cephas didn't know the depth of what he said. Cephas thought it would be wise to get rid of Jesus before Jesus became a problem to the Romans. And if Jesus became a problem to the Romans, the Romans might think that this Jewish king of the Jews was rising up and that could become a real problem to the Jews. And, and Jesus already was a problem to the Jews, the religious ones. They wanted rid of him. And so to Cephas, this was a win-win. Get rid of Jesus. Get rid of the problem. That was in his mind. But if you go back to John chapter 11 and verse 55, we, we realize that his words run deeper. You see, God is in control of all things. And it says of this statement that he made in, in, in 51, he did not say these things of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into 
one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, Cephas, through the power of God, not of his own ability, brought this prophecy that was telling the world and telling us now that Jesus came to give his life and to die to save the lost. Just as the angel said that you shall call his name Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins. Sin is what separates us from God the Father. Sin is what deserves to be judged by the awesome holy God. Sin is what takes people to hell for eternity and separates them from God forever and ever and ever. And this is the heart of the gospel. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right. Even if we could say from this point on, we will never ever sin again. And if we could do that, it wouldn't make us right because our past sins would condemn us before a holy God. The punishment that our sins deserve is the punishment that the Lord Jesus Christ took on the cross. The eternal Son of God became man and lived a perfect life and died the death of the sinner. And at that same moment in time, the sins of his people were put upon him and the full wrath of God was poured out upon Christ. Jesus came to do what no man could do, because Jesus is the I am, who I am. And so we have to stop and pause and ask ourselves the question, do we know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as your saviour? It doesn't matter how good your life is. It doesn't matter how much you are hoping and looking forward to things that might happen today or tomorrow. If you don't have Christ, you have no real hope. The only hope that we have in this life is what we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this life is but a moment before an eternity. Either an eternity with God, our Savior and Creator, or an eternity being punished by God, our Creator, because we've betrayed and rejected Him. Friend, how is it with you? Where are you right now? Had you have died yesterday, what would your plea be? Are you in Christ or would you have been out of Christ? Now is the time to call on the name of the Lord. You see, being religious is not the same as knowing Jesus is your Savior. You see, when Cephas came up with this plan to get rid of Jesus and if Jesus died, then the Jewish nation would be saved. What did they do? Well, John 11 50 tells us, so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. 
The Jews, wherever we see the Jews mentioned in the Gospel of John, it means the religious ones, the religious leaders, the religious leaders who had memorized great portions of God's word, the religious leaders who held rules so tightly that everyone thought they were amazing men of God. They made plans to put him to death. The third main heading is, I am not. And this is in reference to the religious leaders. The the, the high priest wanted to get the better of Jesus. And Jesus, after he was arrested, the first place he went was to an ecclesiastical type of trial, not a civil one. It was with the high priest. And the high priest wanted to get the better of Jesus. And the high priests were looking for an angle to get him in trouble. There was Annas and Cephas. And they were there. And they were judging. And they were asking questions. And they were cross-examining. But the problem was these high priests could not give the sentence they wanted to give. The Jews had no right to kill Jesus at that time. The only people that could do that was the Romans. They wanted Jesus dead. And they started the process and they would riled up the crowds. And it was in the care, when Jesus was in the care of the high priest, when Jesus was in the presence of these high priests, that's when the physical abuse to Christ started. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Think of it. Think of what was going on here. Jesus, the I am who I am, the eternal Son of God, is there. And in the presence of the high priest and on the behalf of the high priest, he is slapped. And that was the religious leaders. That is where the religious leaders, the ones who taught the word of God, The ones who thought that they were doing things that were right. And in many ways they are no better than Judas because they were rejecting Jesus. And in the place of Jesus they had a religion. And the tragedy is that this is happening around the world now. And it may be that some people here are tempted by that same thing. Maybe you have a religion and you think your religion is going to make you right with God. Friend, your religion is not going to make you right with God. The only thing that's going to make you right with God is Jesus. And these religious leaders have got it so wrong. They didn't want Jesus to upset their living, their standard of living, the status quo, their self-importance. They had an agenda and they wanted Jesus dead. And if they were being honest, they would have to say, I am not in Christ. And if all you're holding to is a religious formula, if all you're holding to is a set of rules, if all you're holding to is a feeling or or something other than Christ, then be honest with yourself this morning and admit that you are not in Christ. 
and then call upon his name. And as God's word has promised, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If Peter were being honest, he would have to say, I am a disciple of Christ. But Peter wasn't being honest, was he? Peter lied and denied three times. And our fourth heading is the last, I am not, for this morning. And it's relevant to Peter, I am not. Again, this event was predicted by Christ. Christ said he knew all things. And in John 13, Peter proudly declares that he's going to follow Jesus wherever he went. Jesus is getting his disciples ready for his death. And Peter is saying, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And he goes on to say that he will lay down his life for Jesus. The mighty Peter is saying, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. In verse 38 of John 13, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That's what Jesus had said earlier. And in some ways you could say, well, Peter was braver than all the other disciples because they'd ran away and Peter was the one that got the sword out and Peter must have followed on. And it would seem, it doesn't tell us in this, in this explicitly, but it would seem that John was also there. It would seem that John was known by the high priest and although Peter can't get in, John gets him into the court of the high priest and as he comes in, the servant girl who... The other disciple had got an arrangement to let Peter in. He's, he's asked by this servant girl. The servant girl says to Peter, the, the mighty Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And then we read that Peter goes to the fire, the charcoal fire. It's cold. And there's a whole lot of other servants and officers around this fire. These people wouldn't have been Jesus' friends. You can only imagine the conversation that they were having. And as Jesus is going through his trial with the uh, high priests, Peter is, is there. And some of them around him, and there's not great lighting. It would just be the light portrayed from the fire there. It's not a well lit. They didn't have electricity. You can imagine the situation. And, and they, they look at him and they say, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And then the whole ante is raised even further because the relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off. Now, you've got to remember that, haven't you? 
If you've just seen your relative have your ear chopped off, and we also know that it was healed and put back on, so don't worry about his ear. He was healed by Christ. But you'd remember a face, wouldn't you? You'd remember who had done that. And, and they said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And it was the third time. And Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster, the cockerel, crowed. And that's where John leaves it. John just drops the mic on Peter there. That's it. We know from Matthew and Luke when as soon as he hears the rooster crow, he remembers and he weeps bitterly. But what we have to remember here is despite Peter saying those three times, I am not a disciple. He was a disciple. He is a disciple. You see, Jesus will keep his promise not to lose his own. And he said, and not one of them will be lost except the son of destruction. Judas was lost. Judas went his own way. Judas betrayed Christ. Yes, Peter denied Christ. But he wasn't lost by God. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit do not lose their own. When you're caught in the grip of God's grace... God is bigger than our denials and our failures. Christ's work on the cross covers these sins. Despite Peter's denial, he still is a disciple. And yes, restoration is needed. And we're going to look at that later. It comes up much more later. But I want just to start us being reminded by that the process of restoration is this. It starts with conviction. And that was the difference, wasn't it? Judas wasn't convicted by what he did in the same way as what Peter was. Peter wept bitterly. It started with a conviction. Friends, if you think, if you are concerned that something might be taking the place of Christ in your life, that's a conviction of sin that you need to act on. It doesn't mean that you've lost your faith. It doesn't mean that you are no longer a disciple. It means you need to go back and repent. And you see, so often throughout our Christian life, we can go down the route of Peter and we can deny Christ. It's very unlikely someone is going to point a finger at you and ask you a direct question, are you a disciple of Christ? But is your life that you are living a Christ-like life? Or is the life you are living a denial of your faith? Brother Bola often talks about a Sunday, Sunday Christian. A Sunday, Sunday Christian is in denial of Christ during the week. Are you open about your faith? 
Or are you in denial about it? Do you live consistent to the salvation that Christ has bought for you? Are you always about God's will? Do you put Jesus first? You see, friends, sadly, all too often, we act like Peter. And our attitude and our action can deny our Savior. And if right now you are feeling convicted of this, give thanks. Because that conviction is the start of restoration. But I think this passage has far more for us here. You see, in, in the health industry, they say that prevention is better than cure. And friends, if you have denied Christ, there is a cure to go to him and ask for forgiveness, and he will forgive you. But what is better for us is to not get ourselves in that situation in the first place. And this passage gives us some, some real pointers. You see, how did Peter end up here? Well, Peter ended up there because of the danger of pride and self-confidence. Peter, just a few passages earlier, a few chapters earlier, is saying, I will die for you, Christ. Peter, who are you to say that? Peter was full of self-confidence. Peter was full of pride. As we know from Proverbs 16.8, pride comes before a fall. Friend, if you think that you are not going to deny Christ, you are more likely to deny him than you can imagine. Because pride is what brought Peter to this place. There's also a danger of laziness. A danger of laziness. You see, when Peter was with the other disciples in this valley, and, and Jesus was there, he, he took his close ones with him a little further, and then went on and said to them, Watch and pray. And instead of watching and praying, Peter slept. Friends, if you want to stand firm in your Christian walk, you have to work at it. That there's no place for laziness. We have to watch and pray. And if we're not watching and praying, we are more likely to fall. Watching and praying is what God uses to keep us close to him. Watching and praying is what God uses us to strengthen us when we're watching and praying we're not relying on ourselves and our own sense of confidence we are coming humbly to God asking him to help us and to uphold us and so there's a danger of pride there's a danger of laziness and there's a danger of a fear of man Peter was more concerned at that precise moment of, of what the people asking would think of him than the truth 
And this is outstanding and outlandish, isn't it? Because there he was, Peter, and he'd just got his sword out and he'd just chopped a man's ear off and then there's a little girl at the door and she says, are you one of them? A girl. And then the fear of the situation overcomes him and he fears man more than he fears God and he fears man more than truth. And he said, no, I'm not. And then he's around the fire with them. And they might be laughing and joking about Christ and what he's going through. And they were certainly talking about the events of what's going on. And he's silent and he's made no witness. And then he is asked the question and the fear of the situation, the fear of man got the better of him. Friends, how do we get over the fear of man by watching and praying? And not thinking proudly that we can do it ourselves. We have to come humbly, realizing how we can fail, asking God to help us. But also we see here is a danger of following at a distance. It would have been much harder for Peter to have failed if he was stood right by Christ. But he wasn't. He was hanging out with the others. He was away from Christ. He was at a distance from him. And if you want to be protected from betraying Christ, if you want to be protected from falling, you need to be close to Christ. And that's why we say, look, you need to come to church to be in fellowship because that's where you come close to Christ. You need to be daily in God's word, reading and praying because that's where you come close to Christ. This is how we are protected. And there's a danger of following at a distance. I also think there's a warning here in this passage by way of illustration. And there was Peter and he's warming himself by the enemy of Jesus' fire. What if Peter had been warming himself in Jesus' presence? See, friends, if we practically want to take something away from this, we need to kill the pride in our life that says to us, we can stand. We need to fight the laziness in our lives that keeps us from watching and praying. We need to come to God and ask us to help him fear him rather than fear man because the fear of man will draw us into all manner of dark places. And if you're following at a distance, you're more likely to fail. Quite many years ago, when our Noah was, was, was just a toddler, we went to a zoo. We w- went to a zoo in, I think it was in Austria, and, and they had a whole pack of wolves in this zoo. Uh, and the, the pack of wolves, they had a great big uh, expanse of an area for them. And uh, Noah was quite taken by these wolves. They, they looked like big dogs. They looked quite cute and cuddly to a child. And, and so Rach and I just went back a bit and were sat down. And Noah had wandered quite close to the fence. So he's away from us. 
And one of these wolves clocked it. They saw that this child was there. And it came closer to the fence and it started walking backwards and forwards, eyeing up Noah. And I think that wolf was just going back to his instincts and thinking, that little child's by itself. It's vulnerable. I can have it. And I was chatting to Rachel, and I looked up, and I saw this wolf walking there. Now, there's a big fence between us. It was all safe. But I realized what was going on. And as soon as I started walking back to Noah, what happened? The wolf went. If you're at a distance from Christ, you're vulnerable. And that's what happened to Peter. His pride, his laziness in that moment, his fear of man, and his being at distance meant his failure. And friends, prevention is far better than cure. If you've sinned and fallen, confess and come and enjoy the cure that Christ alone can bring. And for all of us who know Christ, we should be taking this warning Seriously. And we should ask ourselves this question in closing. Whose fire are you warming yourself by? As you go home, are you warming it, your heart in Christ? Or are you warming your heart in the things of this world? I want to leave you with that question for a moment. And just pray into your own situation. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to lead you in your prayers. And then we'll sing our final hymn and our closing prayer in a moment. <laughs>